This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. I've recently been reflecting on what my teacher, Barry Majid, uh, passed on to me over the years. That started on Tuesday morning when I gave a little talk. Continue today. And, um, some of you may or may not know Barry's a. Um, uh, practice. He started practicing Zen around about the same time he started practicing psychoanalysis. Maybe about. Um, in his late 60s now. His teacher was uh, Joko Beck. Barry used to um, travel very frequently, at least once a year, uh, to attend Seshin with Joko in San Diego. So quite a long flight from New York to San Diego, from the East Coast to the West Coast. Joko being one of the first female Zen teachers in the West was also a very courageous woman and um, established her own Zen school and went her own way and dropped the koan curriculum from her Japanese teacher and in many ways opened up Zen to the uh, a lay practice. In other words, uh, she tried her best to make Zen relevant to the everyday lives of Westerners. So many of her talks focused on relationship issues, emotions, things that like that were not normally talked about in classical Zen practice. But Joko did maintain a very rigorous Zen practice. The sessions, which I never attended, but were held in the house in San Diego, where she taught the San Diego Zen Center, which still exists. And uh, her sessions would go for five days. Normally people would be getting up at 5 a.m. and they're sitting till 10 p.m. There would be lots of sitting. She would give a Dharma talk once a day and would see students in individual interviews throughout the day. There would often be about 50 people attending these sessions. There were no private rooms. You would, everyone, the, the men would sleep on the zendo floor, on the, uh, on the mats, um, in sleeping bags. 
and the women would sleep in the interview room. All the meals were taken uh, during the day on the mats. So although she changed a few things and shook a few things up, she still practiced a very rigorous kind of Zen, Japanese Zen, lots of sitting. One of the surprising things when I first started to work with Barry was um, um, he wasn't really into um, a lot of pain. <laughs> he didn't mind a little bit of discomfort and he thought it was good to sit with some levels of discomfort. Um, but one of the things that Barry has passed on to me, and I've probably extended it far more than he would like, is really the importance of enjoying our, 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 our practice. And um, given that the, also the, the age group of um, Barry Zender and, and, and my, often my group is um, often at an age where long sitting is not really going to do us very much good. So it's all about sitting smarter in a way. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a lot to be gained out of those old rigorous Zen days where one sat for many hours, tolerating the discomfort of that, and being with all the uh, difficult, both physical pain, which would arise as well as the emotional difficulties. One can drain, gain a great deal out of that. But really, it's not something we can maintain or sustain forever anyway. So, um, you know, Barry now does his retreats, um, often at a, a place where you know, people eat in a dining room and they sleep in the, either in the um, individual room or in twin rooms and so on. And, um, And the, uh, there's a lot of flexibility around the finding your own level of, uh, of, of um, balance in terms of how long you sit for. And you can sit on chairs, of course, and, and so on. One of them. Um, one of the uh, koans that um, I've um, tends to Barry's used in his teachings, which always struck me as a really good way to get across some of the points that he would teach, um, is um, it's not in the official koan collections, but it's to be found in a book by Dogen, one of the first manuscripts that Dogen wrote after he came back from China in the 13th century called The Bedouin or The Wholehearted Way. I'm actually watching a movie at the moment about Dogen called Zen. It's a Japanese movie that was made a few years ago, a feature movie, like two hours long, about Dogen's life. I'll let you know if I think it's good, we might all watch it together one day. <clears throat> Dogen was one of uh, 
um, one of those of many teachers who um, lost his parents at an early age. His mother died when he was quite young. <clears throat> so um, I refer to this particular koan as the uh, the fire boy seeking fire. So the fire boy was a mythological being in the kind of mythology of from that 13th century Japan and China who was made out of fire. So long ago, Gen Soku was the director monk in the assembly of Zen Master Hogan. So Gen Soku was a senior monk. Hogan asked him, Director Gen Soku, how long have you been in my assembly? Gen Soku replied, I have already been in the master's assembly for three years. Hogan said, you are a student. Why haven't you ever asked me about Buddha Dharma? Again, Soku said, I cannot deceive you, O oh teacher. Once when I was at Zen Master Seho's place, I realized the peace and joy of Buddha Dharma. Hogan asked, with which words were you able to enter? He means by that sometimes um, in classical Zen stories, um, sometimes it's a particular word that um, opens the gate to some kind of realization. So Hogan asked, with which words were you able to enter? Again, Soku responded, I once asked Seho, what is the self of the student? That is my own self. And Seho said, the fire boy comes seeking fire. Hogan said, good words. However, I'm afraid that you did not really understand them. Again, Soku said, my understanding is that the fire boy belongs to fire. Already fire, still he seeks fire, just like being self and seeking self. Hogan exclaimed, now I really know that you don't understand. If Buddha Dharma was like that, it would not have been transmitted up to today. At this, poor Gensoku was overwrought and left immediately. On his way home along the road, he thought, the master is one of the world's fine teachers and also the guiding teacher of 500 people. Certainly there must be merit in his pointing out my error. So, he had a pretty bad night that night, tossed and turned. In the morning he returned to Hogan, and after doing several prostrations in repentance, asked, What is the self 
of this student. And Hogan said, a fire boy comes seeking fire. With these words, Gensoku was greatly enlightened to Buddha Dharma. So, the question is, what was it? That was different this time about the student's realization of the fire boy seeking fire. That was different to his original presentation. Does anybody here want to offer a response? Okay. Well, there are a number of ways to interpret this, as usual. One way to interpret it could be that um, there's often, you know, one can read the, uh, the sutras and you'll come across expressions like, you know, you know Buddha is mind, Buddha is consciousness, whatever. And um, so one can maybe have a, a cognitive or intellectual understanding. So, and that's not bad. It's, it's, it's good to have an intellectual understanding. Um, but as we can see from the koan, if an intellectual understanding, if this one way of reading this particular koan, is certainly doesn't go deep enough, otherwise the student wouldn't have been thrown into turmoil <coughs> when the teacher rejected his expression or his understanding of the Dharma. But probably an even more salient reading of the koan, a second reading of the koan, is that when the student reported um, his experience of when he was at uh, the Zen master Seho's place and he said, I realized the peace and joy of Buddha Dharma, then let's grant that maybe he had a genuine realization of the peace and joy. Sometimes referred to in Zen as Kensho or Satori, a kind of uh, vivid experience of the complete understanding that we are lacking nothing, that we are not separate from the universe, and which brings about a wonderful outpouring of joy, peace, which can last. Um, few minutes or a few hours or for some people when you you know sometimes read about um, contemporary spiritual teachers like Eckhart Tolle who had a, a big experience one day that seems to last permanently um, this sort of like a shifting away of all the ego and all its attachments and all its delusions and illusions etc and um, so let's, let's assume that um, the student did have a genuine realization 
and uh, so his 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 understanding is not just based upon an intellectual understanding, but a natural experience that he had. <coughs> and that the and the teachers sort of um, still still picks him up, still corrects him. And one of the problems with the whole notion of identifying enlightenment with an experience, even if the experience is wonderful, even if it lasts for a few days. Um, and many stories testify to this, both in the classicals and tradition and in contemporary times. It's a bit like, um, you know, that wonderful um, LSD trip or mushroom trip that one took when one was a teenager. It's in the past. And, um, and if we identify realization or enlightenment with something which happened in the past, then we get caught in that sort of uh, snag of um, wanting to repeat something which we experienced. And so again, we end up in the same place we started searching for that which we've experienced and want to experience again. And that's one of the traps of that kind of uh, notion of the identification or realization with a wonderful experience. No matter how wonderful any experience is, it's always going to go away. So the teacher is pointing to something a little bit more fundamental. And, um, and this is where barriers transmission comes into effect. Um, so when the uh, student comes back and he's had a really bad night and he's, he's, he's probably gone through frustration and anger and confusion and he turns up you know, in this particular state of mind of, of uh, all these kinds of states of mind or emotions or feelings that one would not normally identify with enlightenment and the teacher gives them the same expression the, the fire boy seeking fire but this time the, the teacher is pointing to even in the midst of confusion or not knowing or anger frustration or anxiety or shame. This is also the fire. The fire is not to be fragmented off to some special blissful experience. The fire is everything, including these moments of confusion. So What Barry took from this particular kind was how it's so easy for us to get caught into the snag of this isn't it in our practice. And how we are always seeking uh, that this moment is not it, must be something else. And uh, which goes back to the original teaching is that the here that appears in the now 
is always the now. It's always appearing in the now. It's not separate from the now. The experience of confusion or anxiety, shame or anger, is still the play of consciousness. So Barry used to talk about how students would come into Zen practice with a sense of what he would call a curative fantasy, in other words. There's something wrong with me, I need to be fixed. And I've got to gain something, some special understanding that maybe you have that I don't have. And um, that's why um, Barry's understanding of Soto Zen practice, uh, just sitting practice, he built around this notion of no gain, no goal. Um, and he quoted a, a story that uh, Japanese teacher Uchiyama spoke, told him about his teacher. I'll just read it out to you. Um, uh, Uchiyama, who's died a few years ago, was, um, um, his teacher was called Koda Sawaki, and uh, he was one of those very powerful, charismatic kind of teachers. He was a big, tough guy, a real image of what a Zen master should look like. And Uchiyami identified himself as someone who was very shy and anxious, but very dedicated. And he came to his master, Koda Sawaki, one day and said, Master, I've been in the monastery now for quite some time and I'm practicing as well as I can. But I really seem so far away from my ideal. Tell me, if I really stick to this practice and give my whole life to it, do you think that someday I could be like you? And Kodo Sawaki looked at it and said, Absolutely not. I was like this before I started to practice Zazen. Zazen had nothing to do with it. Zazen is useless. And so Barry goes on to talk about how that uh, uselessness goes very much to the heart of our practice. Um, which comes back to this notion of the, uh, the essence is not distinct from the appearance. A little bit like... Uh, the aesthetic in Japan of wabi-sabi, um, where one might find some uh, object which is old and mild and flawed and it's a thing of beauty. And it's a thing of beauty exactly because of its flaws. And, um, in the same way, we can think very much of the aesthetics of Zen practice as being about appreciating ourselves with all our flaws and the beauty of that, the uniqueness of that. Just being one with this moment. No matter what particular state of mind we might be in, 
we're always here and we're always now.